This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I want to welcome you uh, both in person and online to the 2019 Bay Area Net Patient Education Conference. This year's conference is being co-hosted by UCSF, Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, and NorCal Carsonet. Uh, I'm Josh Mailman. I'm the president of NorCal Carsonet and uh, one of the co-hosts for today. Uh, what I'd really like to do is to start the day off, um, introduce my co-host, and um, really a great friend, um, who is Emily Bergslin. Emily is a GI oncologist uh, with the, obviously a clinical research in uh, neuroendocrine tumors. Um, right now she's the chair of the National Cancer Institute's task force on um, neuroendocrine tumors. She's also a member of the NCCN uh, tumor guideline panel and lastly, she is um, newly elected as the vice chair of uh, the North American Neuroendocrine Tumor Society. Uh, she's many of our doctor, uh, our oncologists who takes care of us, and um, she really is a friend to all of us, and it, great, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Emily Bergsland. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, on behalf of my UCSF colleagues and uh, uh, Josh, I would like to welcome all of you here as well, um, both the people in the room as well as the people who are online. I also want to thank UCSF Health, NetRF, and our other sponsors for making, um, making this conference happen. We're very appreciative of their support, and I just wanted to acknowledge that. Given the multidisciplinary nature of the care of neuroendocrine tumors, I want to alert you to the fact that today you're going to see multiple disciplines represented here. Uh, we'll have speakers and panelists uh, from medical oncology, surgical oncology, nuclear medicine, interventional radiology, endocrinology, palliative care, among others. In addition, you'll see representation from nursing, nutrition, social work, and other supportive services. Our goal today is to update you on the recent advances of neuroendocrine tumors, uh, as well as provide tools and resources to facilitate coordination of care and the overall wellness for our patients and their caregivers. So we have taken a sort of a very broad, broad approach to today, and we hope that you guys will all find it useful. So recognizing the very broad uh, range of experiences in the room, from people who are very newly diagnosed to people who have been living with the disease for many years. We're gonna start with an overview of neuroendocrine tumors, what they are, how they are diagnosed, and how they're treated. So I'm gonna kick that off, uh, and then we'll jump right into some other uh, lectures on a few other topics. So if I could have my slides, please. Great. Okay, so um, just to start out, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a brief overview of what neuroendocrine tumors are and how they're diagnosed. And one thing to keep in mind is most of the day is going to be focused on well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors. You'll hear me use that term multiple times. This is in contrast to poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinomas. So when it's appropriate, I'll try to compare and contrast. 
Many of the, probably the majority of you in the room have well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors. The poorly differentiated ones have a different treatment algorithm and a different prognosis, so it's important to differentiate between those. But we'll talk about the workup, the overall treatment, um, just hitting the basics. You'll hear a lot more details in the subsequent talks. And then along the way, I'm going to provide some tips for, for facilitating coordination of your own care. And I think as a patient, you can play a key role in that and helping your providers to, to weave it all together and know what's going on. Okay, so what are neuroendocrine neoplasms? These are tumors that arise in nearly any organ in the body. Um, they arise from neuroendocrine cells, so that's really what threads them together and makes them similar sort of to one another. They share markers and some other features I'll talk about. They can be some, something called functional or non-functional, and that refers to whether they make a, a hormone that causes a clinical syndrome. Um, and only a minority of tumors actually is, fungal, is func functional, but it's important to recognize when they are producing hormones in excess. And there's a whole list of them that I have there. They can arise in multiple parts of the body. And there's a real spectrum. Some of these tumors, even when they're metastatic, are very, very, very slow growing. And patients can live, in some cases, many decades with their disease. In other cases, they're very rapidly progressive. And that's typical for the poorly differentiated neuroendocrine or high-grade neuroendocrine neoplasms. So it's important to understand where you fit in along that spectrum and where, where your tumor fits in guides your doctors in terms of how they treat that tumor. So the incidence of neuroendocrine neoplasms, just about of all types, is increasing. Small cell lung cancer is decreasing, but the other neuroendocrine neoplasms are all decreasing, increasing. The reason for this is not entirely clear. Um, we do know that most patients appear to have what we call sporadic tumors, which means we don't really know why they develop. Um, the, um, the mutations that these tumors harbor are sort of mysterious in carcinoid. You don't actually find a lot of common, um, common mutations. In pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, there are some typical recurring mutations that we'll find in the tumors. But, but the actual reason these develop remains fairly elusive. About approximately 10% of the time, these arise in the setting of a family history of a neuroendocrine tumor and one of these familial syndromes that I have listed there, like MEN1, von Hippolipo, neuro, um, uh, neurofibromatosis, or tuberous sclerosis. This is rare, but we don't want to miss these. So we usually will always ask a good family history to try to see whether there's any clues in terms of um, your own family's um, course. I want to call out two special cases. One is patients who have something called paraganglioma or pheochromocytoma. There's a growing body of evidence that many of these are, in fact, inherited or potentially inherited. And there's now been identified close to 20 genes that can be associated with the development of these tumors. These can pass, be passed along from parent to child. And so we recommend that all patients who have parafeo are evaluated for the possibility of a family syndrome for the disease. And then more recently, there have been some data that have come out with pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors that suggest that potentially around 15% or so of patients may have a hereditary version. So we're pretty liberal with our genetic testing for pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor patients as well. 
But for most patients, it's a bit of a mystery why their disease develops. And I think there's a lot of interest in trying to understand this better. But for now, we don't really know why most of these tumors arise. Um, they could be due to a new mutation in a family or an inherited one, as I said. Um, and so we do consider testing patients if the family history fits under certain uh, diagnosis conditions um, or if a patient's very young. So what defines a neuroendocrine tumor? I mentioned these all arise from neuroendocrine cells throughout the body. And because of that, they typically express neuroendocrine markers. And what this means is that the pathologist, when he or she is looking at these under the microscope, can stain the tissues with antibodies that will, will pick up these neuroendocrine markers. And this is usually done in the context of many other stains that they're doing to understand the tumor type. Um, but chromogranin and neuron-specific enolase, um, synaptophysin, CD56, these are examples of neuroendocrine markers. And the pathologist is looking for that to support their diagnosis. So they look at it visually under the microscope and get a ballpark of what kind of tumor they think it is, and then they'll do these extra markers to confirm the diagnosis. These often express something called somatostatin receptors. These receptors happen to be the receptors for drugs like octreotide and lanreotide, but these are normal uh, receptors in the body for a hormone that we all have called somatostatin. And having high levels of these receptors is very characteristic of neuroendocrine uh, tumors, particularly the well-differentiated tumors. You can pick this up by imaging, and Dr. Hope is going to talk about that more in a few minutes. But they, I have listed there on the right side of the screen a gallium-68 dotatate panel, and the, the, dark, um, the dark spots sort of right in the center there is an example of a dota-positive tumor, which means that tumor expresses somatostatin receptors, and you can pick that up by give, injecting this tracer called gallium-68 dotatate, which is a miniature version of somatostatin, and will go right to those receptors on the cells. We typically will characterize these tumors based on where they started. That's the site of origin or the primary site. Also, their ability to make peptides that cause symptoms. As I said, those would be functional tumors. Um, and their grade. So the grade is very important. I said that at the start. And this ranges from very well-differentiated tumors where the cells all sort of look very similar. You don't see a lot of cells dividing. They often are in little nests. Um, and they look very reminiscent of the normal neuroendocrine cells you would see in organs like the pancreas. So that's a well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumor. And on the right on the panel, you can see poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinomas. These actually look to the pathologist to be much more chaotic. The cells are much more heterogeneous, different sizes. Um, they can see more cell divisions. Um, and when they stain for markers of cell divisions using a marker such as KI67, they can see that a much larger proportion of cells is dividing. And then there's everything in between. And believe it or not, there's actually tumors that are what the pathologist called ambiguous. And so there's, it's not always black and white. And we often have to integrate what the pathologist is seeing under the microscope with how the patient looks and feels, how their tumor is behaving. And oftentimes, this becomes more clear over time. Okay, so um, the typical classification for the GI and pancreas nets, which I think accounts for a lot of people in the room, is grade one and two tumors are well-differentiated tumors. 
They're distinguished by their KI-67 and mitotic rate. So those are indicators of the rate of growth, the percent, the percent of cells that are growing. So if your KI-67 is less than 3%, so 3 out of 100 cells stain positive, then you have a grade 1 tumor. And those would be predicted to be very slow growing. If your KI-67 is between 3 and 20%, that would be a grade 2 tumor. Now, what was recognized over the years was that there were some tumors where they looked under the microscope to be very well-differentiated. They, they looked like classic, well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors. But when they stained for the KI-67, it was high. It was over 20%, 30%, 40%, even 50% or higher. That's a new class of tumor, particularly for pancreas as of 2017. That's called a well-differentiated G3. That hasn't officially been applied to other organ sites, although we've been seeing it in other organ sites unofficially. Now, these all are well-differentiated tumors, and they would all be predicted to have reasonably um, slow-growing tumors. Along the, granted, there's a spectrum. This is in contrast to the poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinomas. Those are comprised typically of small cell carcinoma and large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma, as well as mixed tumors, and I'll talk to you about those in a little bit. What makes this even more confusing is that the pathologic classification system varies So, if you have by organ site. So if you have a lung neuroendocrine tumor, there's actually a different classification. It's the same in principle, so I think that's important to understand, is there are low-grade tumors and there are high-grade tumors. But the specifics of what's in the pathology report and the terminology that the pathologists use will vary depending on whether you have a lung net, a GI and pancreas net, or a prostate neuroendocrine net, you know, or other sites. So this does create a confusion for providers. It creates confusion for pathologists. You don't need to know the details of this slide, but I just want you to be aware of the fact that it's, it's evolving, it's changing over time, and it's a little bit different for each organ site. So these are um, why I know we will often review pathology when we see patients here as new patients, just to make sure we're all talking about the same tumor, regardless of what's in the PATH report. Okay, so um, for the GI and pancreas in particular, you must know the percentage of cells that are um, dividing that's typically what's done is the KI-67. Um, I mentioned this new category of well-differentiated G3. Um, the optimal treat for treatment for those tumors is somewhat unclear, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more in the pancreas breakout session today. It's not black and white in terms of behavior. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is we re-biopsy a patient if their behavior of the tumor is not fitting with the, with the pathology report. And sometimes, remember, those reports might be from 10 years earlier when the past biopsy was. So we have a pretty low threshold for rebiopsying. If it's just not fitting, if the tumor's growing more rapidly than we expected, we will rebiopsy. And sometimes these tumor characteristics change over time, and the KI-67 can go up over time. That's particularly true in pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Okay, so I'm going to briefly touch on treatment for the disease. Um, but again, as I said, in our clinics, when we're taking care of patients, the first thing we look at is, is this a poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinoma or a well-differentiated tumor. So that's important. Um, for the well-differentiated nets, I'm going to talk about those first. 
Um, pancreas neuroendocrine tumors actually represent about 10% of all pancreatic tumors if you look at patients who are living with the disease. So they're, they're not as uncommon as people might think. Um, they're usually well differentiated. They are often advanced at diagnosis, but they can also be discovered in very early, early stages. A, a growing problem is the identification of tiny pancreatic tumors that maybe don't have much clinical significance, but was picked up on a CT scan done for another reason. Um, most of them don't make hormones, but they can make hormones. Uh, for carcinoid tumors, these are the non-pancreatic, well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors that arise in what's called the foregut, midgut, or hindgut. That relates to um, the developing uh, embryo. There are different parts of the body that develop from these different regions. And the foregut is the lung and the stomach. The midgut is the small bowel, essentially. And the hindgut would be the lower colon and rectum. And the point I want to make is that the, the likelihood of carcinoid syndrome depends on um, what part of the body your carcinoid started in. So the most common place to have classic carcinoid syndrome is in patients who have a small bowel neuroendocrine tumor. Um, you can also get carcinoid syndrome in the lung nets, um, but they can also make some other syndromes. They can make excess um, hormones called ACTH, which causes Cushing's, um, and they can also be more commonly associated with problems like wheezing. Interestingly, tumors that arise in the rectum don't usually uh, make any hormones at all, and they're not associated with carcinoid syndrome. Okay, so for the workup, we typically will do scanning, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. If it's a, a sizable tumor or if there's any indication of spread, we'll usually do um, either an Octrea scan or more commonly we do a Gallium 68 DOTA scan. Occasionally, we'll do upper endoscopy, where they look down, for example, at the pancreas and do ultrasound or colonoscopy or endoscopy. Sometimes we'll do that. And then there's biochemical evaluations that we'll do, which means blood tests or urine tests. Those are usually tailored by symptoms. And I'm just going to go over this briefly. Um, Chromogran and I used to use a lot. I actually don't use it very much anymore. And the reason is it doesn't usually change my diagnosis um, or my workup or treatment. It's not specific for neuroendocrine tumors. You'll note that there are false positives with kidney problems and, and pregnancy, atrophic gastritis, and some other diagnoses. It also, you have to be off a, a proton pump inhibitor, which is a widely used drug. People are on drugs like omeprazole and pepsid and things like that very commonly. Um, so there's a lot of details around surrounding use of chromogranin that make it a little bit of a difficult drug uh, marker to follow. And I have to say, I'm using it less and less in my own practice. Um, we often will do urinary 5-HIA for carcinoids. That's looking for um, a hormone that can cause carcinoid syn syndrome, which is wheezing, palpitations, flushing, headaches. Um, there are a variety of things to be aware of, though, in terms of the collection. You have to watch your diet for three days before you start the 24-hour collection. So it is a bit of a hassle. There is an alternative, the plasma 5-HI, which is available at selected centers, and that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, I also want to mention that there is this entity of unknown primary. So a patient's diagnosed with their tumor but in the liver, for example, but we don't know where it started. We actually do try to figure out where it started because as you'll learn during the day, the treatments are somewhat different um, depending on, for example, whether a tumor started in the pancreas versus the small bowel. So we do try to make an effort to sort out where the tumor started. 
but it's not necessarily something that all needs to be done in one week. And this is something that might happen over a number of months. And oftentimes, by the time we get the DOTA, we have a better understanding of where the tumor started. But I can tell you, for most tumors that are, for example, metastatic to the liver, and you don't know where the tumor started, most of the time it's in the small bowel. And Dr. Nakakuro, who will be here later today, has data from his surgical group that about 85% of the time they can find it in the small bowel if they take a patient to the operating room to look for it. Um, Okay, so how can you facilitate your care? The bottom line is, as a patient, if you can know some basics about your tumor, it's really helpful. Um, Where did it start? Is it low or high grade? Does it make hormones that cause symptoms? How extensive is it? Is it it localized and not spread anywhere, or has it spread somewhere, which would be stage four? Is it positive on a DOTA scan? That's an important feature that we look for. And did it arise in the setting of a hereditary syndrome? So if you know those basic things, that will help you a lot if you're ever looking for clinical trials, if you're meeting a new doctor, um, if you're getting an opinion at another center, these are all helpful. Okay, so for treatment, early stage disease, we just resect and we don't do any additional therapy for well-differentiated tumors, depending on the size of the tumor, but for most of them, we'll do follow-up scanning, usually once a year for 10 years, and that's it. Um, For liver-dominant disease in the metastatic setting, we would also consider surgery, but for a different reason, not for cure, but to actually set the clock back. Um, And that is done selectively. It's not the right fit for every patient. It depends on the disease. There are lots of factors that go into it. But I think what's important is what we've learned about over the years is that doing surgery doesn't cure patients if they have spots in the liver, if they have tumors in the liver, but it just sets the clock back, we think. So we think it has value, but it's not likely to cure patients. So I'm going to turn now and talk about to patients who don't have disease that can be removed by surgery. They have disease that's advanced, that's in place. It's a well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumor. I'm mostly focusing on GI and pancreas for the purpose of this discussion. And when do we start therapy? And I would say that first off, sometimes we just watch a patient. If a patient had it discovered incidentally and didn't even know they had it and don't have symptoms... It's, not, it, it's a reasonable approach to watch that patient for a little while because some patients don't need therapy for, for some amount of time. It could be six months or a year or more. Um, but if they have symptoms from the hormones that are being overproduced, that's an indication for therapy. And usually we'll use drugs like octreotide and lanretide for that. We'll talk more about this in our breakouts and other sessions today. And then, of course, if there's evidence for growing tumor, then that's a definite indication for starting therapy. So there's been a lot of changes in what's been available for neuroendocrine tumors um, uh, to patients and providers over the last 10 years. We don't know exactly how to sequence all of these agents, but um, luckily, we have a growing number of options. Um, In terms of you as a patient facilitating your care, One thing to remember is if we're lucky, this disease is going to play out over many, many years, in some cases decades. So I find it really helpful if a patient comes into me and can tell me what treatments he or she has had, because sometimes it's over multiple institutions in different cities where they might have lived or gotten care. So yes, this should all be in your medical record, 
But it is true as a patient, if you know some of this information, this can be very helpful, especially if you've gotten care at other centers. But the basic treatments you've had, when you had them, and I find it helpful to know why you stopped the treatment. Because some patients stop the treatment for side effects before the treatment had stopped working. And that's a drug that I might consider revisiting later on with a lower dose or with some new medications to to monitor the side effects or mitigate the side effects. So I'm going to go through the different therapies for you very briefly, a high-level view. These, again, for patients who have disease that can't be removed by surgery. We will often do liver-directed, other liver-directed therapies. So these are the treatments like embolization to the liver. Um, There are different types of embolization. Um, These tumors are often only in the liver or predominantly in the liver, so this is a very attractive approach, and it works pretty well. Um, It doesn't cure patients, but it can cause shrinkage in up to 50% of cases. Um, We also do things called ablation. The radiologists um, can do this through the skin. They can reach the tumor and ablate it. Um, And then we also use radiation. There are forms of selective radiation that you can use on liver tumors. So there are a couple of different things we'll do for liver-specific disease. Um, The optimal treatment is unknown. I think it depends on the patient and the location of the tumor and the the doctor preference where you're getting your care. Somatostatin analogs also have anti-tumor properties. So we talked about using those to control hormone symptoms, But there's now a couple of studies that have showed that these slow tumor growth. They don't shrink tumors typically, but they'll slow tumor growth. And uh, they're commonly used as a first step when somebody's starting therapy for advanced disease. Now, you can take that somatostatin analog and you can add radiation to it. And that's a form of radiation therapy that's targeted. And you're going to hear a lot more about this later today. This is also called PRT, peptide receptor radionuclide therapy. I'm going to show you data right now from the Netter um, 1 study, which was done in mid-gut, so small bowel neuroendocrine tumor patients who had disease that grew despite regular doses of octreotide. They had four intravenous doses of this drug called lutetium-177 dotatate. It's given IV every two months, intravenously every two months. And they also received octreotide along with their um, intravenous dotatate. And then the control group of patients got a very high dose of octreotide. And what you can see on this slide is the the median time to growth of the tumor, that's called progression-free survival, survival was about 28 months in the patients who had the PRT and eight months in the patients who had the high-dose octreotide. Um, And the shrinkage rate was pretty rare. Only about 13 patients, pretty small, only about 13 patients had major shrinkage. And uh, not surprisingly, it was also low in the, um, in the uh, octreotide arm. But the point is, this really was a, a significantly positive study. It definitely, in this study, appeared to delay growth of tumors. And it led to FDA approval of this strategy a year ago um, in January of 2018. And the FDA actually approved this for pancreas and GI nets. And you'll hear a lot more about this today. Um, There are also some other targeted agents um, that are given orally. These are pills. One is called sunitinib. This inhibits blood vessel growth in tumors um, and signaling of some receptors that govern that process. And the other is everolimus, which inhibits something called mTOR signaling, which is um, a component of the metabolism, basically, of cells. It governs cell metabolism and growth. Both of these drugs stabilize tumors on average for about six or seven months. 
Um, they're oral, they're daily therapies, they have different side effect profiles. Sunitinib's approved in pancreas only, and Everlimus is approved for GI, lung, and pancreas. They're FDA approved. And then for chemotherapy, um, we use this selectively. We hardly ever use it in the, in the carcinoid-type disease, but in pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, there's about a 30% response rate. And while streptozocin is FDA-approved for this indication, um, the pendulum has really swung towards using temozolomide-based therapy. Dr. Coons, who'll be here this afternoon, led a national study looking at CAPE-TEM versus temozolomide alone, which suggested that both of them had about a 30% response rate, but the, um, the stability was much longer in the combination. So I'd say CAPE-TEM is most widely used. Um, we also use it occasionally in lung nets, and for those of you with lung nets, we'll have a, a separate session today, a breakout on lung nets, and we can talk about that. So the bottom line is there's a whole range of treatments that we can use. Some shrink, some stabilize, um, and really we're, we're trying to choose the sequence of therapy that makes sense for given patients. What one person has in terms of sequence might be very different than the person across the table from you, and that's because there's a number of factors that go into that, including some tumor factors, the patient factors. You know, if a patient has really bad high blood pressure, we're not going to use a drug like sunitinib. Um, if a patient has very widespread disease, we're probably not going to use a lot of liver therapy, as an example. And then it's what's available at your institution and what's the, the, the practitioner comfort with the various therapies. So really a multidisciplinary team is very helpful, and I would say this is probably not, doesn't even cover all of it, but I would say in our clinics here, the ones with the dark gray boxes are all co-localized. So we have patients, if, if you come to see us in clinic here, on the same day you can see surgical oncology or nuclear medicine or interventional radiology or endocrinology, depending on the day of the week. But there are all these other services that are involved in caring for patients. And if your care is joint, like mine is often with a local provider, we're hopefully trying to work with your local provider to integrate all of this care. Some of you may have all of this available within your, with your system, such as Kaiser, for example. Okay, so if you do have providers in multiple systems, you're getting opinions um, outside of your hometown, you're going other places, things you can do to help are maintaining copies of your scans and reports, your lab tests, a diary of your symptoms, if you have carcinoid syndrome, for example, or you have low blood sugars from insulinoma, it really helps us to just look and see the trend. Um, and then the names and contact information for your providers really helps facilitate your care. Okay, the last few slides, then I'm going to turn to poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinomas. This is a totally different type of, of tumor, so I really want to separate that from all my other comments. These also can arise anywhere in the body just about. They account for usually only about 5% of tumors at any organ site. The one exception is the lung. Small cell lung cancer actually accounts for about 15% of all lung uh, cancers. These usually don't make hormones, although they can, and when they do, it's usually a, uh, something called ACTH. Um, patients often have a very short illness, so instead of being uh, having many years of symptoms or having no symptoms at all, these are patients who will often say, you know, I was fine six months ago. I got sick six weeks ago. I became ill. That's very classic for a high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma. Um, and unfortunately, oftentimes at diagnosis, these are very advanced. Um, 
and are typically treated with chemotherapy because the KI-67, the proliferation rate, is often very high. It's 60, 70, 80, 90% in most cases. And those are, those are tumors that often will respond to chemotherapy. Um, the workup includes imaging, like we talked about, CT scan or MRI, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. In this case, we don't typically do a DOTA PET. We will sometimes do an FDG PET. That's a sugar PET that looks for sugar uptake. And because these tumors are rapidly dividing, oftentimes we can, um, uh, they're using a lot of sugar, and you can see that on an FGG PET. These are usually negative on a DOTA PET, which is why we don't do those often. And then we usually will review the pathology because these also have complex pathologic features. Uh, they can often be mixed with an adenocarcinoma or a squamous carcinoma. Uh, for example, in the colon, these often arise in the setting of a basic colon cancer, but then the neuroendocrine carcinoma element uh, pops up and grows. And they can be present at diagnosis or they can show up over time. And in the breakout session, we'll talk more about that. Uh, but I would say this doesn't happen, as far as I know, I've not seen it in the small bowel. I have seen this happen with pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Um, this subtype, usually, regardless where it starts, we usually do platinum-based chemotherapy. Surgery and radiation have a role for localized disease, and in some setting, we'll do radiation for advanced disease for comfort. But it's used selectively, and I'd say chemo is the main stay of therapy. Immunotherapy, while it doesn't have a foothold yet in well-differentiated tumors, it has a growing role in the high grades, and we'll talk about that in the breakout and the optimal second-line therapy really remains to be seen um, in this disease. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. So I'm going to finish by just saying there is information out there. I just put as an example our website and the NorCal Carcinet website. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.